Welcome, welcome everyone, new listeners and those that are listening in every week as we move through a genre of literature known as wisdom literature. Oh, and I just want to give a special shout out to listeners in India and Hong Kong, which now represent over 11% of all the downloads of this podcast. I do appreciate you out there. But as, as many of you know, anyone can pick up at any point in our studies. We're now actually 19 weeks into the genre of wisdom literature, and we, we marched through prehistory all the way from Hammurabi through the ancient Greeks and the Romans to Jesus Christ. And now, after this episode, we will wrap up part number two of our ancient traditions in religion, philosophy, and political theory with a group known as the Desert Fathers and Mothers. And then we move on to the Middle Ages across the entire globe. But before we get there, the Desert Fathers and Mothers, well, you may not be familiar with this group in the ancient Christian tradition, but oh, you will be. Oh, you will be by the end of this episode. And I can guarantee you that you can take some relevant wisdom from this hardcore. And when I say hardcore desert hermits, you will in the minimum be impressed by their lives. But I also hope you can take some insights into their theories and find modern application in your life because that's what it's all about. This group of hard-as-nails followers of Christianity are about as polar opposite of a ri- to a rising brand of Christianity in the Protestant faith known as the Prosperity Gospel Preachers. Oh my goodness, how things have changed. Oh, how things have changed, and, and I can't wait to explore this with you. Gosh, where where do I start with this? There's so much to discuss. And, and on the one hand, I truly want to get my point across about these prosperity gospel pastors. But at the same time, I want to be cognizant, respectful, and careful to not do gross overgeneralizations of things, especially the Christians that listen in that are truly trying to walk out their faith versus the prosperity gospel peddlers. And yes, in my opinion, they are peddlers of snake oil. You may disagree with that, and and that's okay. But as I was reading the text this week from the Desert Fathers and Mothers, I, I kept mentally coming back to comparing them to some of the modern theological teachings and specifically the the prosperity gospel pastors. But... I think I want to start a little differently with our youngest generation, Gen Z, the Zoomers as they're known. The Millennials, hey, glad you're listening in, but you're kind of old news. The Zoomers, wow. The Zoomers, such an such incredible promise with this very large generation, but some very dark signs on the horizon as well. Gen Z is the most likely generation yet to say they do not believe in God or any religion. They are also the least religiously affiliated and the least likely to attend church. Meantime, their rates of depression and anxiety are soaring. The Centers for Disease Control recently published a report stating that almost 60% of female students experience persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness during the past year, nearly 25% made a suicide plan. Wow. Poll after poll shows that they are the least happy, 
the most medicated with antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications, and they're showing suicide rates off the charts for their age in comparison to prior generations. Look, it wouldn't be sound theory for me to grossly jump to a conclusion that Gen Z's lack of religion is the sole cause of the mental distress of Gen Z. I, I mean, social media, the draconian COVID lockdowns, the soaring costs of college education, and well, any number of things that are just up in the air in society today are obviously all contributing to this. But, but let's just call it what it is. Christian church, you are failing miserably in connecting with the younger generations. If you're a pastor or a church leader or or just a Christian listening to this, my goodness, far too much of the newfangled Christian theology is not working. It is not working at all. And you are losing an entire generation of young people. And ultimately, if we're not careful in a few generations, you will kill the church. Now, I can't connect the dots. I mean, one, I'm not trained in the field of theology, but I do know young adults. I've been teaching in higher education for over 30 years. Yeah, uh, even when I say it, 30 years, geez, that sounds like forever in a day. And well, when we talk about religion, most specifically the Christian religion, as it makes up the bulk of the Western worldview, words such as corrupt, hypocritical, close-minded, egotistical, snooty, self-righteous, judgmental, and condescending. Ouch. This is literally the opposite of what Jesus Christ taught. Like, We read from the text last week about Jesus, and it's the opposite of the foundations of the Christian faith. But when you ask young people why they don't follow, believe, or have interest in the Christian faith, those words of hypocritical, condescending, judgmental, self-righteous, those are the words that they are using, not me. So instead, what we're seeing from far too many Far too many pastors is theology based on the idea that there is a contract between God and humans. And if humans have faith in God, he will deliver security and prosperity. This simply is a lie. The prosperity doctrine emphasizes the importance of personal empowerment. How nice, how youtube how motivational speaker-ish. And, and these very charismatic pastors in $5,000 suits propose that it is God's will for his people to be blessed, even though nearly every story in the biblical tradition is one of trials, travails, pain, hardship, and death. The real reward to a Christian is not on this earthly plane. The real reward is in heaven if you read the text properly in the Christian tradition. But there is literally nothing anywhere that God promises a life of ease and contentment whereby one will conquer the evils of this world and win if only they drop some money into the bin. Sure, 
you can get in alignment and you can walk out the Christian faith and that can bring you peace and contentment and that can bring you um, joy and it and it can teach you love, but it will always be hard. Life is hard. The walk, it, the walk in life is always that way. The reward in Christianity is in the hereafter. But there is no guaranteed Bentley or even happiness in this life. The atonement or the, or the reconciliation with God is interpreted far too often to include the alleviation of sickness and poverty, which are viewed by curses to be broken by faith in the prosperity gospel doctrine. This is believed to be achieved through donations of money, visualization, and positive confession. Too often, the prosperity gospel breeds charlatans and snake oil salesmen, preaching or giving a rousing motivational speech to the early Christians who escaped the prosecution of the Romans to the desert to follow the teachings of Jesus after his death. They would be appalled and disgusted at the prosperity gospel preachers. They would cringe at the empty calories, all fluff and happiness in short-term easy high, like go, sort of like going to Dunkin' Donuts and eating three sugary powdery donuts and washing it down with an 800-calorie iced coffee mocha with three syrup flavors, whipped cream, and topped off with chocolate sprinkles. Come on now. You know what I'm talking about here. Oh, that would go down so smooth and so good. And, and basically, that entire thing has nothing but garbage that serves zero nutritional value in your body. This is how the ancient followers of Christ would view the prosperity gospel of today. I think the prosperity gospel is a short-term appeal. But obviously, it does resonate. To a certain degree, because roughly about 30% of Christians right now are in churches that would fall into this category. This version of Christianity, though, it can't satisfy the deep, profound, spiritual inner longings of our lives. But to the youth, the youth of America... I think they believe they want the adventure. They want something deep and they want hard and they want real and they want meaningful things to go after and to challenge them. But instead in the churches, they're surrounded by fluffy, simple stuff. And I'm sorry, but Gen Z, they can spot BS a mile away. No, not a mile away. Gen Z can often spot BS about 15 miles away. I just want to put some of these guys out there so you can appreciate how anti-Christian in comparison to the teachings of the actual Christ in his ancient texts that we have been studying they are. So, so here are just a few of them. There, there are many, many more, but, but I just have time. I'll give you three of them because they've kind of risen to the apex of material wealth and prosperity for being a pastor of the church. We got an individual named Kenneth Copeland. He's 
He's very close to being a billionaire, even though he already claims a billion dollar status. He runs Kenneth Copeland Ministries, and his ministry has a 1,500 acre campus. Uh, it's about a half hour drive from Fort Worth, and it includes a church, a private airstrip, and a hangar for the ministry's $17.5 million jet and other aircraft, and $6 million church that's right on a lakefront, uh, and uh, a $6 million church, uh, owned lakefront mansion that, that Copeland lives in. Wow. Uh, and, 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 and he's gonna teach you to be generous, to be giving, that material wealth doesn't matter. Yeah, right. Uh, another one, Bishop T.D. Jakes lives in a $1.7 million mansion. He's been called America's best preacher and has been featured on the cover of Time magazine. He's a writer and a preacher and a movie producer. Uh, he is a the bishop and chief pastor of the Potter's House, a non-denominational American megachurch with 30,000 members, and it's located in Dallas, Texas. And then just to, to go overseas for a bit, there's an individ, there's a pastor named David Oyedipo. He's a Nigerian pastor, and he has a net worth of $150 million. And he enjoys the reputation as the richest pastor in Nigeria. And he's the founder and presiding bishop of Living Faith Church Worldwide also known as Winner's Chapel. Oh, what a nice name. What a what a, uh, what a a secular name. Winner. I'm a winner if I go to Winner's Chapel. And it's affiliated international churches known as Winner's Chapel International. These are just three. But you get the point. There are many, many more. To get just a brief flavor of the types of messaging from these preachers, here's a couple of quotes. Joel Olstein says, quote, no matter how many times you get knocked down, keep getting back up. God sees your resolve. He sees your determination. And when you do everything you can, that's when God will step in and do what you can't do. Well, maybe, possibly God will do that, but maybe not too, at least not in this life. You may have to struggle your entire life and still at the end of it, you still may not be financially well off or happy. Heck, very good people die every single day. Very religious people. I mean, come on. Bad things happen to good people every day. This unrealistic idea, this this sugar-coated message that if you struggle long, long enough uh, and you have enough faith and, and you give enough money, well, well then you're going to be okay. Well... Maybe, over time, maybe God will make your life on earth happy and wealthy. But maybe not. The Bible doesn't promise happiness in this life. It just isn't true. There's no finish line that's going to lead you to health, wealth, and happiness guaranteed in this life. Another quote, T.D. Jake says, quote, what, wom- what woman would not appreciate a God who becomes her attorney, assumes her case, requires no fee, and wins her the victory. Oh, jeez. This is just so, so, ugh. No wonder young adults are, are not buying into Christianity. I mean, come on now. I think you get the idea of the, of the prosperity gospel. Because what if a young lady listens to T.D. Jakes, follows 
carefully, gives money to the church carefully, attends carefully, buys his books, buys his CDs, goes to his movie for years and years and years, but yet there's no victory yet in this life. That sugar high eventually wears off and it leaves people even more disillusioned than when they started. When you set up unreal expectations and it doesn't come through for you, it can lead to even worse pain than where you were at before. But our ancient texts this week, they don't come from YouTube or some potential victory by giving $19.99 a month. We're taking some hardcore warriors and disciplines of the Christian faith that were true seekers of knowledge, true seekers of truth, true seekers by living out the austerity, the humility and discipline that Christ actually asked of his followers we will call them the desert fathers and mothers. Now for a little history lesson on who these people were before we deep dive into their the- theology. So after the death of Jesus, the Romans persecuted Christians everywhere because basically they refused to profess allegiance to the state or to take up any Roman civic duties. This completely perplexed the Romans who normally, when they would conquer a territory, Uh, They would abuse the people uh, into submission, and then the people would just fall in line. The Christians simply refused to do this. In fact, the Christians seemed to relish and take on with gusto punishment and pain for their God. Romans just could not get this. But, As a result of all these persecutions, uh, many of them renounced their wealth. And there was in the third century CE, and they fled into the desert. And uh, there was a... There was an individual named Polis of Thebes, and he fled into the desert. He became like the first hermit. And, And... He was followed by many people. And then of special note was when St. Anthony the Great, and he he lived roughly from about 251 to 356 CE, he went into the desert of Egypt and he attracted a very large number of Christian followers. And, And this gave rise to the monastic idea that flowered in the Middle Ages. Morally speaking, the concept of what St. Anthony was trying to do was this idea that if you withdraw into the quote-unquote huge silence of the desert, uh, you could be closer to God. The monks who did this, they lived in small cells or groups, which were often homes were dug in into the desert caves, uh, crude stone huts. Each of these were built far enough apart that each inhabitant of their own little cell Uh, They could not see or hear their neighbors. Then on Saturday and Sunday, they would meet in church and and they would pray together and they would worship together. These hermits, not sure what else to call them. Uh, They they wore very meager clothing, had small rations of food, often only ate dried beans or unleavened bread and just really brackish water from the deserts. And and they wove baskets uh, that they would sell for just a small amount of money to survive at, at markets. They slept on the bare ground or even meager cots and, and worked with their hands. They probably possessed 
a codex that contained many of the religious scripture. But the emphasis for this nomadic group of the desert was prayer and fasting. Many of these hermits deliberately avoided discussing theological questions, just really for a couple reasons. I would say one, to avoid disputes about the meaning of Scripture. As, as you know, um, if you're Christian or Muslim or, or if you're Hindu, you know, scholars will interpret Scripture different and it can lead to arguments. And they just didn't want any of that. It wasn't worth their time. And number two, they wanted to focus on practice not theoretical Christian theology. They were not committed to to a refined theology or philosophy, but to living out a certain way of life. It's almost comical uh, to imagine someone like Ken Copeland, Joel Olstein, or T.D. Jakes, or any of these multi-million dollar prosperity gospel pastors surviving a day, let alone a week or a month, totally separated from their material wealth of the modern world uh, to commune with God in the desert, sleeping on the ground or some rough cot in a cave. Heck, the prosperity gospel pastors would probably consider a five-star resort in Tahiti an escape to commune with God. It's almost laughable. So these were, in general terms, the desert fathers and mothers that I've been speaking about. But they actually break into three narrower streams of followers. And these, I mean, they're not totally important, but hey, let's just break them down so you're aware that not everything fell exactly the same way. The first group, uh, the Anchoritic tradition, they often lived in close proximity to each other. Uh, they refused to take up public duties. Romans hated this. And they devoted themselves to a solitary prayer and biblical study. They believed fervently in the hermit or reclusive lifestyle and were committed to being withdrawn and almost completely retired from society. They had no aims whatsoever to revolutionize society or culture or anything like that. They were simply trying to find this deep connection with God, the type of connection with God that, that Jesus had when he walked the planet earth in their, in the biblical tradition. So uh, the second group they were called the Cenobitic, and this group emphasized community. They included monks who lived in groups with rules and established customs. But the third way of life, which constituted the majority of the monks, and this is the group that had the most profound impact on the Middle Ages and the medieval period that we're moving into after we finish up this episode, were the Coptic or the Christian Church of Egypt. This group, it was begun by St. Amun in Nitria. These people, semi-hermetic, and the lifestyle consisted of groups of two to six monks and nuns, a very small group, as you can see. They lived together under a spiritual elder. They would meet together for weekend worship, and their lifestyle attracted more educated monks who left us the written record of their life in the desert. And I want to say that again. This is where we're getting that written record of their life in the desert. So who were these people? Because this is the group that we end up studying the most because, of course, they're the ones that left us written record of their beliefs and their teachings. Well, number one, philosophically, they were... 
there was a decisive turning away from theoretical inquiries of the Greek of the Greeks. The monks believed that in matters of religion and morality, abstract reasoning and logical demonstrations, they were worthless, they were unnecessary, even dangerous. St. Anthony often mocked the Greek philosophers who, who, who would come to visit him. They were just so curious to see who in the world this guy was and what was he doing. He would go so far as to say that what Christian believers possess is not skill with words, but faith through love that works for Christ. The Coptic monks believe the proof of Christ's teaching is found in faith, not argument. The moral life of these desert hermits seemed to represent a halfway point between older views and a modern view. Evil was an external force, which existed physically in the form of the devil, who was always prowling around, always in a struggle with God for the souls of humanity. Thus, everyone had to be prepared and to resist this devil internally. The notion of original sin, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, it played a large part in this. And human nature was seen as fallen and could only be redeemed with grace through divine assistance. There was no intellectual, rational, moral, human escape from the evils of the devil. There was only one way out, and that was faith in God. So obviously... What we see from these Christian followers in the desert was a strong turning where they saw ethics primarily as action, as a matter of overcoming our corrupted nature. The victory over sin was personal and subjective, but there was only one way out, and that was through the divine sacrifices of Jesus Christ. These people believe the ultimate source of spiritual or moral wisdom is inside of us. As the scripture said and taught them, the kingdom of God is within you, end quote, which is found in Luke 17, 20 through 21. Most interesting to me, though, was this rejection of society. They lived in poverty and repudiated the ordinary comforts of life. They believed in self-sacrifice. However, they saw their suffering as a form of discipline, of training, almost like an athlete would train with physical exercises to improve their craft. The desert fathers and mothers, they, they literally thought of themselves as spiritual athletes or soldiers who achieved heroic feats of fasting, silence, self-denial of simple pleasure and sleeplessness. They didn't believe this because they thought somehow they were going to become wealthy or become happy in this world. They did this because this is the way they could most most fully connect with God. The practical ethics that we can learn from these desert, fa- these desert fathers and mothers is simple. The monks placed a very high value, as we might expect in the Christian tradition, on good works. Moral wisdom and virtue are found in humility, obedience, chastity, and charity. They also placed a very high value on forgiveness and the refusal to judge menial work, much like prayer, was seen as a virtuous way 
to quiet the restless mind. So you may be thinking, how in the world can I read what these people believe for myself and use it? Uh, I mean, there are a few sources that stand out. And one would be Anthanasius of Alexander. He wrote a biography on St. Anthony the Great in Greek. And this ultimately was translated into Latin. And the Latin version became very popular in the, in the Middle Ages and influential to the monastic um, monks of, of the Middle Ages. But I believe the one book, if you wanted to study the Desert Fathers and Mothers, would be a book called Sayings of the Desert Fathers, because this book has a diversity of material and includes very memorable statements, exchanges, and anecdotes. It's easy to read. Loved reading it. Uh, the collection contains over a thousand sayings and the anecdotes attributed to, geez, 27 different spiritual leaders, both male and female, uh, which is which is incredible to see during this time because in, in a patriarchal dominated society as it was, uh, the female voice made it into the into these books. Uh, that's the term desert fathers and mothers. It actually reads really easy. There's one expert uh, about just the life of St. Anthony, one excerpt about the, the life of St. Anthony, but, but then there's a collection of sayings that are arranged by topic. And, and although the tone is different because you have some different voices involved, it, it kind of reads like the collection of proverbs in the Jewish tradition or the Greek collections of aphorisms. And it's kind of a compilation that we find even in the early Chinese tradition, which we studied a, a long time back. So before we go, I, I just want to give you a flavor, maybe a brief flavor of some of the sayings from the book, sayings of the Desert Fathers. Of course, as usual, I have a hyperlink to a free version of the entire book where you can study every single one for free. It's just fascinating to read the words of these people that lived thousands of years before us and the the deep wisdom, simple deep wisdom that we can find in them. But if you go in the show notes of this podcast, then go to my Substack page, Intellectual Freedom, uh, Intellectual Freedom uh, Podcast. You'll you'll see that, and you can subscribe for free, and you can gain access to the entire work itself. But in this podcast, I just want to give you a little flavor of some of the main sayings that you could find inside the book. So as I read these, I'll just give you the headings, and then the short little uh, story that goes with it. Athletes. Those who are great athletes must contend against stronger enemies, end quote. Fear of God. A brother asked, how does the fear of God dwell in the soul? If a man is possessed of humility and poverty, and if he does not judge others, the fear of God will come to him, end quote. Humility. Neither aestheticism nor vigils nor any kind of suffering are able to save. Only true humility can do that. Period. It was said, Abba John the Persian, but when some evildoers came to him, he took a basin and wanted to wash their feet, but they were filled with confusion and began to do penance. Wow. Judgment. Abba Theodore also said, quote, If you are temperate, 
do not judge the fornicator, for you would then break the law just as much as they. Remember, he who said, do not commit fornication, also said, do not judge. A monk once committed a fault. A counselor was called to which Abba Moses was invited, but he refused to go to it. Then they sent someone to get him um, and said to him, Come, for everyone is waiting for you. So Abba Moses took a leaking jug, filled it with water, and carried it with him. The others came out to meet him and said, What is this, father? The old man said to them, My sins run out behind me, and I do not see them. And today I'm coming to judge the errors of another. When they heard that, they said no more to their brother, but forgave him. Love. Abba John the Dwarf said, quote, Our house is not built by beginning at the top and working down. You must begin with the foundation in order to reach the top. They asked him, What does the saying mean? He said, The foundation is our neighbor, whom we must win over with brotherly love. And that is the place to begin. For all the commandments of Christ depend on this one. End quote. Monastic precepts. Abba Pullman said, Poverty, hardship, austerity, and fasting. Such are the instruments of the solitary life. Amma Theodora said, Let us strive to enter by the narrow gate, just as the trees, if they have not stood before the winter storms, cannot bear fruit. So it is with us. This present age is a storm. And it is only through many trials and temptations that we can obtain an inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. Abba Amon was asked, what is the narrow and hard way? He replied, the narrow and the hard way is this, to control your thoughts and to strip yourself of your will for the sake of God. This is also the meaning of the sentence. We have left everything and followed you, Matthew nineteen twenty seven. Poverty. When Abba Makarius returned to his to his hut, he found a man who owned a beast of burden, engaged in plundering his goods. So he came up to the thief as if he was a stranger, and he helped him load the animal. He saw him off with great peace of soul, saying, quote, we have brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of this world. First Timothy 6-7 through The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job 1.21 When asked if poverty is a, is, is a perfect good, he said, For those who are capable of it, it is a perfect good. Those who can sustain it, Receive suffering in the body, but rest in the soul. For just as one washes coarse clothing by trampling them underfoot and turning them about in all directions, even so the strong soul becomes much more stable, thanks to voluntary poverty. End quote. Renunciation. 
quote, do not let yourself be seduced by the delights of the riches of the world as though they contain something useful on account of vain pleasure, end quote. Thankfulness, quote, blessed is he who bears affliction with thankfulness. A virtue. Can a man lay a new foundation for virtue every day? Answer, if he works hard, he can lay a new foundation at every single moment. Works, quote, we do not need words only, for there are many, many words among men. We need works, for this is what is required, not words which do not bear fruit, end quote. So I think that's probably enough quoting from the sayings of the Desert Fathers. I think in the end, it really reminds me of one of the most well-known scripture passages about wealth. It takes place in Judea. And Jesus had just finished an illustration about oh, welcoming children into his kingdom. And a rich man comes up to Jesus and asks him a very simple question. One that many would ask if they ever would have the chance to meet Jesus. How in the world do I inherit eternal life? Jesus tells the man to keep God's commandments. And the man quickly claims to have kept. And he says, well, I, I, I've done that. I've done that. So, so what do I still lack? And Jesus responds, quote, if you want to be perfect, go sell all your possessions and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God, end quote. This is found in Matthew 19, verses 21 through 24. I wonder what would happen. I wonder what would happen if Joel Olstein, T.D. Jakes, Ken Copeland, or any of these prosperity gospel megachurch pastors would run into Jesus Christ and Jesus told them the very same thing. He told this the, the same thing that he told that really rich young man in Judea. With these megachurch pastors with their 20,000 plus square foot homes, their private jets, their fleet of high-end cars, would they give it all up? I don't know. I don't know any of them personally. But the way they manage their wealth, the way they present themselves, and the way they accumulate absurd amounts of wealth would tell me that the answer is no. Their actions don't match their words that they preach just like the desert fathers and mothers warned us that just because you say something, just because you preach something doesn't mean you actually believe it. And when your actions and the way you live don't match the words that you speak, it should make everybody question their integrity. 
You know, really, anyone can get up on a stage. And with that Southern Baptist rising crescendo of, of, of glory, speak, deliver a powerful sermon, and then bring it down to a very profound, a very sedated, meaningful-sounding sermon. But yeah, just like the Desert Fathers and Mothers said in the old tradition, those words don't mean anything if they don't match the actions. Now, some of you may be listening and you have money. And, and, and here's the question to ask yourself. How much does that money influence your decisions? How much does it influence what you give? How much does it influence what you do? How much does it influence who you hang around with? How, how tightly do you hold on to that? It's an honest, fair question. Not because I ask it, because I'm not worthy to ask such a question. The ones that are worthy would be the desert fathers and mothers that literally gave up everything and lived a life of pain and suffering and introspection. Uh, That when they ask it, that's a more valid individual to, to question you. So you may be worth your time to read. So... As I reflect on my readings from this group of Christian desert wanderers, and and I read a, and, and I read daily about how the younger generation is just simply not buying what these modern theological prosperity gospel pastors are selling, because these pastors' actions do not necessarily match the words out of their mouth. The Christians of today, embroiled in politics, embroiled in all kinds of things that are not Christian, well, is it any wonder that the younger generation is staying away from the judgment, from the egotistical from the absurd wealth and opulence that far too much of the Christian church is now dedicated. Now, once again, I'm not a theologian. It's not my place to, to, to how should I say this, to, to give direction on a way a church should go, uh, to tell a church how they need to operate. But maybe... Just maybe they need to turn away from this materialistic rock band, beautiful campus view of Christianity, thinking that it works for the younger generation when obviously, based simply on the numbers, it is not working. Maybe what the church needs is rather than preaching this fluffy, happy-go-lucky messaging of if you do the right thing, wealth and abundance and happiness is all going to come to you. Maybe we need to get back to a little more hardcore focus about what the desert wanderers were teaching, about discipline, humility, shunning overt materialism, focusing on love and community and acceptance, not judgment and condemnation and and forcing people into a belief system and, and just deep into politics, but rather focusing on the inner self and getting the inner self right. Because when you do that, then true power and true influence and true connection with 
a, a spiritual, a metaphysical being can show itself to society and the people that we're around and, and in the world that we live in. Maybe that's what we need. Not these stupid prosperity gospel pastors that are asking for money constant and promising if they have enough faith and they put in enough cash, all's going to turn out well. I think that's probably enough for today. Pretty much exhausted from this. And, and so I thoroughly enjoyed reading some of these words. And I, I hope this gives you a deep and dark contrast between the desert fathers and mothers and these prosperity gospel peddlers. I just so thoroughly enjoyed reading some of these works. And, and like I said, I, I hope you'll have a look at them. I hope you have a deeper look at some of these ancient, powerful, strong individuals who walked the walk and didn't just talk the talk. The truth is we have to get tougher in this society. We have to get tougher in so many different ways. And these prosperity gospel marshmallows, uh, they have nothing over the older generation of those hardcore Christians who were completely sold out and living the life of Christ. Now, now, what we have far too often are pastors that are so darn worried about filling their seats so that they can make their money and, and they have this bizarre and unhealthy focus on becoming the fastest growing church in Florida or the fastest growing church in the United States. And these pastors are gallivanting around the country in private jets. They deliver sermons and they write books. And they're doing their thing as if they're paid consultants and not pastors that are supposed to live out their live out a life of Christ. And until that happens, I fear this younger generation is just simply not going to buy the story that the pastors tell because their lives don't match the stories that they preach. I'm sorry. Far too many pastors come across as hypocrites. How many times have you had a pastor in a church say, oh, well, I was just last week up in Atlanta delivering a sermon on this. And oh, I was over here doing a sermon on that. Oh, I had I, here's my book and you can buy it out in the lobby of the church. And I mean, come on, too many pastors come across as hypocrites. And let me go one step further. Far too many Christians in general come across as hypocrites. Probably is what is needed is to redirect our focus and get away from all this prosperity gospel BS and dive a little deeper back down into some of the more ancient sources. Some of those sources that are very close in proximity to the life of Christ when he walked the planet Earth, when he was alive, as they were attempting to live out exactly what Christ was preaching. Right now there is two big of a separation between the old gospels and what is being taught today this happens i mean it just it naturally happens when theories are new and fresh and vibrant and there's optimism and there's hope and there's focus and there's energy and then over time it kind of sort of changes and it kind of sort of molds and moves it happens in political systems it happens in religious systems it happens in social systems it happens all the time but for the christians and this really was a focus on christianity today
stop giving money to these pastors. Maybe what you need to do is just read. Read some of the greatest, most profound the episode today. Thank you once again for listening. And I hope to see you again and and to talk to you again next week. In the next episode, next week, we're moving on from Ancient Sources, which is where we have been, which was part two of of our book on the wisdom literature genre and and our walkthrough. breakup of the Roman Empire, and this ushers in a brand new era of religion, a brand new era of ethical inquiry. Oh my goodness, science is going to start to emerge on the scene, and we're getting closer and closer to life like you and I know, Uh, but next week, come on back, and let's start to take on.